Now, in our world today, there are many who say that Jesus never existed, and you will see that today, and they will say that there are no contemporary secular sources for the existence of Jesus, that it simply does not exist, that he is made up, he is a myth or a fable, that there are no written histories that mention Jesus of Nazareth at all, simply an invention of a sect of Jews, a fantasy, a myth, a fabrication, as I said. These views are promoted by the same people who tell us, coincidentally, that there is no God. Okay? So, we, we've got a, you know, the, the Venn diagram is this. You know, there, there's no overlap of the people who say that. Uh, it's a, just a circle. They say that God-fearing people might as well, oh, by the way, might as well believe in what they call the um, flying spaghetti monster. Have you heard that term? This is a a term propagated. And I'm going to give you the Wikipedia, okay, definition of this right here. Because I did not make this up, and it's not something I just heard. It's in Wikipedia, so it's in a it, it's in a major source here. Okay, Wikipedia says that this view is that of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, otherwise known as Pastafarianism. Just to let you know, now that's the clever part of what they've done uh, that it's Pastafarianism, um, and they call it a social movement that promotes a light-hearted view. Of religion. Okay, that's not what they're doing. <laughs> they're not promoting a lighthearted view of religion. They're um, denigrating, mocking Christianity and anybody who believes in Jesus Christ. Come on, I mock us sometimes, okay? This is not mocking. Wikipedia goes on to say that this lighthearted view of religion originated in opposition to the teaching of intelligent design in public schools, uh, which is a clue to exactly how lighthearted this opposition to Christianity is. What it does show rather clearly, however, is the childishness on the other side of the argument. Okay? In our passage in Acts today that we're looking at, The Apostle Peter is in Caesarea at the home of Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile centurion in the occupying Roman army, as we know, in response to a a vision in which an angel of God told the Roman to send to Joppa for Simon Peter, staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. Upon the Apostle's arrival, Cornelius thus assembled a houseful of friends, and relatives, as well as other soldiers, and it says believing soldiers, so there already were believers. Walking into this room full of Gentiles, Peter said in verse 2, you yourselves, in verse 28, I'm sorry, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And continuing on, 
Uh, Skipping a little bit forward, in verses 34 through 43, it says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, Uh, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead." To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, we're focusing not on that great big long section today. We're focusing only on verse 37a. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, is what Peter says there. Now... What is noteworthy is that Peter is saying this to a room full of Gentiles. And I'm making a point here, okay? He's talking to a room full of Gentiles. Now, Cornelius is a God-fearer, so he's been in the Jewish uh, synagogues, uh, um, learning religion, but he's not a Christian. We know that because God said to send for Peter, okay? So... Cornelius is there, a God-fearer, but he's brought in friends who are Gentiles like him, who know nothing about this religion. And yet, Peter says, you yourselves know what happened. Okay? I've read modern scholars mock the notion that Jesus was known at all anywhere but maybe in Galilee, his home. Certainly he wasn't known anywhere else in the Roman Empire. The land of Israel, as I pointed out before, was a backwater. The armpit of the umpire, uh, empire. Uh, Israel is what gave armpits a bad name, as a matter of fact, is because it was nowhere. And nothing that happened in Israel was of consequence anywhere else in the empire, except Maybe something. They say that Jesus was just a minor fringe figure in a despised part of the world. But yet, the Apostle Peter starts off his address to this group of non-believers, pagans, and Jewish curious persons by saying, you know what happened here. It was not a secret. Okay? Not only was it not a secret... They were pretty famous. They did not need to be told. Um, even Roman citizens, army officers, knew all about Jesus. 
They knew about uh, the baptisms by John. They knew of Jesus' ministry. They knew of his good works. They knew of his healings. They knew that he had resurrected people from the dead. They knew of his crucifixion, his death, and resurrection, and all the people who saw him, talked with him, and uh, even ate with him after God raised him from the dead. You all know what happened, is what Peter starts out saying. So, if, as Peter says, these people know what happened, why didn't any historians reference Jesus? I mean, of course, you know, Christian writings uh, reference Jesus all the time. I mean, you know, come on, we've got the early church fathers, we've got the New Testament, we've got the angels... If Jesus is the product of the fervent imagination of the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, of course Christian sources would generate favorable copy about this um, obscure, pathetic, minor religious figure. Okay, But um, as modern scholars tell us, there are no contemporary secular accounts of the life of Jesus. Unless, of course, you count... Flavius Josephus, known simply as Josephus, and if you ever hear about him, you'll not hear his first name. His life coincided perfectly with the early church. He was born in AD 37, which three to seven years after the death of Jesus. We don't know exactly what year that was. Josephus was Jewish. He was a Jewish historian, but he was not writing for the Jews. He was writing for his patrons, the Romans. Okay, Anything that Josephus wrote had a favorable bend to, um, to the Romans, which is why I don't in history usually quote Christian sources as opposed to the uh, secular sources because Christian sources also put a particular bend and I'm not saying they change history I'm saying they, they are putting a different bend to the story and my first example is going to show you that his writings of the Jew, about the Jews and he wrote a lot uh, now as we know from the Bible, the books are not long books, okay? But he wrote like 45, 50 books about the history of the Jews. So how long were they? I don't really know because I haven't read them. Now, writing in the biblical era was limited by the availability and cost of writing materials such as scrolls. And one of the interesting things in this, in this writing, have you, have you noticed how brief and concise the New Testament is? It's not wordy. It does not go on and on and on about events. Even like this sermon does, okay? Just the facts, ma'am. It's the dragnet version of Holy Scriptures. And a fellow said, it's because Christians were poor. The people writing these were poor, and it appears that all of these books were written on one scroll. One scroll is all that Matthew could afford. One scroll was uh, all Mark could afford for the Gospels, or Luke, or John. They were limited by the cost of scrolls. Now, my point here is, Flavius Josephus was not poor. 
His patrons were the Romans who wanted to know for the administration of their colony exactly what the Jews thought and what was going on. Josephus was given all he needed to record with. Josephus's most noted writings were the collection Jewish Antiquities, chronicling Jewish history from, get this, from creation to AD 66. Okay, that's where uh, Jewish Antiquities takes you. So it's sort of a comprehensive covering of this. His second most famous book are the Jewish Wars, which covers AD 66 until the Jews were crushed in AD 73. That one only covers, like I say, seven years, eight years, depending on how you count. In his Antiquities, at chapter 18, verse 63, Josephus gives us the longest secular writings on Jesus known to exist. He writes, About this time lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was the achiever of extraordinary deeds and was a teacher of those who accept the truth gladly. He went over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. When he was indicted by the principal men among us and Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him originally did not cease to do so, for he appeared to them on the third day restored to life, as the prophets of the deity had foretold these and countless other mar- oh, as the prophets of the deity had foretold these and countless other marvelous things about him, and the tribe of Christians so named after him has not disappeared to this day. Now, this passage was found in a section covering Pontius Pilate, and now Jesus, Josephus was a Jew and very much not sympathetic to Christianity. So if this, what I just read to you, sounds like it might have come out from uh, Peter, Paul, and John's public relations firm, yeah, there's a little bit of that going on here. This is what is commonly come down as Josephus' writing. It first appeared in Eusebius's history where he counts it. Okay, Niels, who was just out, said, Dad... You're not going to use that because everybody knows that that is not real. By the sound of it, this passage was modified by Christians uh, to put in their prevailing opinions on Jesus. Okay, uh, Because of this, modern historians do not put much translation trust in this version of Josephus' writing. However... You know how much I like non-Christian sources um, for early Christian history. It's my favorite part because, because you get the negative spin instead of the positive spin. That was sort of a positive spin about who Jesus was from Josephus. Well, in 1972, a Professor Shlomo Pines, now you might see where I'm going with Professor Shlomo Pines, of the um, Hebrew University in Jerusalem found another line, another series of translations of Josephus uh, that came down through history. And um, 
the final version was done by Agapius, dating from the 10th century. Agapius was in the Byzantine church, was, which is the Eastern church. We think of it nowadays as Eastern Orthodox. So he is yet a Christian, and I'm pointing that out. But here is his translation of Eusebius, the same passage. Okay, It says, At this time there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good. And he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. Okay, what do I have here? I have the exact same thing reported without the spin. Okay, that Jesus was a wise man. His conduct was good. He was virtuous. Many people believed in him. Pontius Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. That after three days they reported, and note the words, that they reported that he uh, appeared to them, not that he did. So we have a secular historian reporting facts as they've come down to him. Outside of the editorializing, the passages are remarkably similar. Uh, The important facts are the same. Other secular Roman accounts of Jesus and the uh, Christian church should be found. Pliny the Younger in uh, 112 AD, the Roman governor of Bithynia. Bithynia et Pontus, which is in modern Turkey, uh, as so many of the early Christian sites are, uh, wrote to the emperor Trajan, for instance, asking about how to deal with Christians who believed in Crestus, which is what they called him, Um, And then Trajan wrote back and said, you know, uh, because (laughs) I didn't write this down, but Pliny said, you know, I found a couple women that they called deaconesses and I tortured them for a while and they wouldn't recant. What do I do with them? And Trajan, who is called by some the, I forget what it was, but the gentle emperor uh, said, you know, sort of stop with the killing and the torturing of Christians. You know, they're not causing any problems. Um, that's just an aside. But um, Tacitus, who lived from 56 to 117 AD, was writing about Nero and the Great Fire here. And he says, consequently, there were, a report was written that blamed Nero for the fire. So consequently, to get rid of the report... Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So, what we have here, once again, we have 
an overview of the facts of Christian's life that that uh, Pontius Pilate stomped him down that uh, they say he came back it's a hideous hideous and shameful report so Tacitus also reported on Jesus and facts about his life Lucian from 115 to 200 AD we're a little bit further downstream from these others Uh, this is now 70 years after Jesus' death Lucian um, uh, wrote in his works that Christians were poor wretches that quote still worship the man crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult into the world. Well, that's not exactly why he was uh, crucified, but we'll let Lucian, 70 years removed, go ahead and report that. Celsus, who lived at the same time as Lucian, accused Jesus of, quote, having invented his birth from a virgin, being, quote, born in a certain Jewish village of a poor woman of the country who gained her subsistence by spinning and who was turned out of doors by her husband, a carpenter by trade, because she was convicted of adultery, that after being driven away by her husband and wandering around for a time, she disgracefully gave birth to Jesus, an illegitimate child who, having hired himself out as a servant in Egypt on account of his poverty and having there acquired some miraculous powers on which the Egyptians greatly pride themselves, returned to his own country, highly elated on account of them and by means of these uh, proclaimed himself a god. Okay? Well, here we have the negative spin by somebody else who was busy stomping down Christians, but once again, facts of Jesus' life. The journey to Egypt might be a little bit out of time here, but the facts are still being mentioned. And finally, we have Mara ben Seraphon, and this would be a Jewish name, and he's writing in the early first century, and I like this one. He says, What advantage did the Athenians gain from putting Socrates to death? Now, what I love is, you know, this contemporary, we've got, he's going to mention three contemporary figures, you know. He says, what advantage did the Athenians gain from putting Socrates to death? Famine and plague came upon them as a judgment for their crime. What advantage did the men of Samos gain from burning Pythagoras? In a moment, their land was covered with sand. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that their their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. The Athenians died of hunger. The Samoans were overwhelmed by the sea. The Jews, ruined and driven from their land, live in complete dispersion. But Socrates did not die for good. He lived on in the teaching of Plato. Pythagoras did not die for good. He lived on in the statue of Hera. Nor did the wise king die for good. He lived on in the teaching which he had given. A couple other Romans, Thallus and Phlegon, independently wrote of the, the unexpected darkness the unexplained darkness which they described as an eclipse 
uh, that covered the land at the time that Jesus was crucified. Now, I've explained this before, but not just at the time of Jesus, but 2,000, 4,000 years ago, all of these cultures that didn't have TV were watching the sky and they already had calendars when every eclipse was coming. They knew when, because eclipses come on a regular schedule. They had known for thousands of years when the eclipses were coming. And here's an unexplained eclipse, and Robin has shared with us that they knew the eclipse in China. It wasn't a localized eclipse. The world went dark around the world, and they knew it wasn't an eclipse because they knew when they would come. They also reported, uh, these two Roman historians reported on the earthquakes that we say rolled the stone away, but that also ravaged most of um, Israel. In fact, I mentioned that the, uh, the Sanhedrin could no longer meet in the chamber in which they tried Jesus because it was destroyed. They had to go into the marketplace to uh, have their meetings. There are over, well over 100 secular accounts of Jesus, his life, and the events surrounding his death. This, then, is the lesson from antiquity. If you say that there is no non-biblical and thus secular historical accounts of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection, it is either because you are ignorant, and that is not a slur, it simply means you do not know, or that you choose not to know. And that is a slur. Okay, I'll give you that one. If you choose not to know, you are ignoring facts. The ignorant choose to believe so-called experts without looking into history themselves. The ignorant can be cured by honest intellectual inquiry. But what about the ones who choose not to know uh, the truth of history? Those who choose not to believe. And I've told you about the people in my life who have chosen not to believe. And without a miracle, they will go to their death not believing. Because they really do choose not to believe. And unless God calls them, they are never going to believe. I often say that I am preaching to the choir. Except we don't have a choir, okay? Um, or a reformed church, you know, congregational singing. And there's a utility to that, of course. To the building up of the faith in believers. And the flip side of that is that I cannot make non-believers believe. I can't make skeptics believe. That is not my job. It's not my responsibility. Okay? Only God gives belief. But we are called, all of us, to winsomely share our belief. Winsomely. Not beat people over the head with it. We share... I try to share what I find in history and say... Look at this. If this is the reason you're not believing, look at what 
actually is out there. In our short verse here in Acts 10, Peter says to the gathered group of Rome, Gentile members of an occupying country uh, and army, and various friends and relatives, you know what happened here in Judea. You know what happened here. It was not a secret. The history was undisputed. The events surrounding Jesus and the beginnings of the church were as close to those gathered in Caesarea at this time as the 2016 election was to us. Okay, so we don't really know what happened. No, never mind. (laughs) There's a little dispute there too, okay? And the 2020 election, I, I will give you that. But it was that close in time. It was... 2016. The history was known. Jesus had lived among these people. Some of these people may have seen Jesus that he's talking to. Um, Perhaps they had traveled to Bethany as crowds had to gawk at Lazarus who was known to have been resurrected from the dead by Jesus. And it says that crowds came to see Lazarus in Bethany. Perhaps they knew somebody who had been healed by Jesus. Were some of the centurions or some of the regular soldiers guards at the foot of the cross? Or guarding the tomb? It doesn't say. Did they know people who had? It was a small army. It wasn't a large occupying force. If they weren't there themselves, they probably knew men who were. They had seen the unexplained darkness that covered the land. They had felt all of Israel shake and crumble as Jesus died. Peter said, you know what happened here. There was no doubt And they were gathered here together in Cornelius' house to find out what they all knew about actually meant. And Peter opened his mouth to speak, is what it said. Uh, That's a a Greek euphemism that he was about to say something important. Because most uh, most of us open our mouths to speak, okay? And it says he was about to open his mouth to speak later on. Later on, Peter writes near the end of his life in 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1.16. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And to this crowd of Gentiles says, You guys know. You know what happened here. And in coming weeks, we'll share what what he told them as he goes over the history of what did happen and what it means to not just those pagans gathered in Cornelius' house, but what it means for everybody for all time. Let's close in prayer.